Big Tent USA Special Indictment Spotlight. At Big Tent USA, we put democracy over partisanship and we're building a women-led voter coalition. We care about protecting the guardrails of democracy, ensuring government accountability and transparency, and increasing civic participation. To date, our fall events include Robert Hubble and Simon Rosenberg on September 27th, Suzanne Nozzle, president of the Penn Center on October 4th, and Heather Cox Richardson on October 25th. All of these events are virtual starting at 7 p.m. Eastern time. I'm gonna take some liberties with one of those famous film taglines of all time, which is not from The Godfather, but from Jaws 2. Just when we thought it was safe to go on vacation in August, the fourth indictment of Donald Trump is announced. Thankfully, we have a leading expert to help us recover from the legal whiplash we're all feeling. Andrew Weissman is a co-host of the outstanding and timely podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, which I highly recommend. The link is in the chat. In addition, Weissman is a professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU Law School and the author of Where Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation, on which he served as lead prosecutor. Weissman was the chief of the fraud section in the DOJ and served as general counsel for the FBI. It is not an exaggeration to say that Andrew Weissman is the preeminent prosecutor in the United States, winning cases against notorious crime families and Enron to name a few. We are so honored to have Andrew Weissman with us tonight. Please check out our live transcript if you need it and put your questions in the chat for Andrew. And I will turn this call over to Andrew and our own Wendy Rogovin. Thank you so much. Take it away, Andrew. Okay. So I think the format um, we're going to follow is I'm going to say briefly um, some some comments I have about um, the challenges I think Jack Smith faces based on some of my own experience, uh, particularly from Enron and the special counsel Mueller investigation. And then uh, Wendy and I are gonna sort of try to very quickly uh, turn it over to questions and answers. Uh, obviously, if there's anything that I say, cause I'm gonna try and go pretty quickly that you want me to go back into, you'll let me know. Um, so the first thing I wanted to talk about was um, one of the unusual aspects of trying a case that has such national and, and frankly international significance uh, is going to be with jury selection. Uh, having tried cases that um, receive an enormous amount of attention and divide people uh, politically in terms of what they think is the phenomenon of people who actually want to get on the jury. I know most of you are thinking, who the hell wants to do that? But that that's what happens in these kinds of cases is that it is very, very difficult during jury selection, um, which is very rigorous. It involves a, a very lengthy written questionnaire uh, and then individualized questions by the judge of the jurors. Sometimes the litigants actually get to ask questions as well, but they certainly get to propose questions to the judge. Um, it's still very hard to make sure that you have a jury that's fair and impartial and 
um, actually uh, believe what they say during the voir dire process, which is that they're going to put aside whatever preconceived views they have and just base their verdict based on the law given to them by the judge and the facts as they appear in court and nowhere else. Um, two sort of conflicting anecdotes I have with respect to that are in uh, one of the Enron trials, uh, the jury foreperson turned out to be somebody who um, held up the jury for nine days. We waited for 10 days for the jury to come back. And then we had no idea what was taking so long. We had no jury notes. Turns out the jury was very quickly unanimous, except for this one juror who um, wanted to write a book about the case. And so all of the exhibits that um, had been given to the uh, jurors to consider during deliberations, he was copying them down for nine days for his book. Um, now, fortunately for us, he didn't end up being a holdout and he voted to convict. But um, I was I was uh, in a sort of fetal position, <laughs> you know, absolutely, um, you know, with dire dire straits, thinking about what was going to happen, um, uh, you know, as this progressed through nine uh, and then the tenth day. Um, the the other example is is um, much more heartening, and that is from the first of the Paul Manafort. Uh, trials, um, the one actually the one that went to trial because Paul Manafort pled guilty the day before the second case was going to go to trial. In that first trial, um, one of the jurors, and actually the only juror who spoke to the press after the verdict, um, said that she had voted for Donald Trump, that she had a MAGA hat, she had it in her car, and she said she left her hat in the car before she went to the courtroom. Um, and that was such a nice sort of vignette of what she understood to be her oath of office, which was whatever her views were, whatever political views were, whatever she thought about us or the case or the justice system, she as a juror had said that she would listen to the facts and follow the laws as told to her by the, the court. And she voted to Convicted. And actually, during that interview, she had a little aside to then President Trump, which was, she said, by the way, it would be a mistake to pardon Paul Manafort. Um, he didn't listen to her, obviously. Um, but that's sort of an example of um, what you want all jurors to be. The problem is that it only takes one to have a hung jury. In order to have a conviction, of course, takes 12. In order to have an acquittal, it takes 12. It has to be unanimous either way, but it only takes one to have a hung jury. And a hung jury will be viewed by Donald Trump and his allies as a huge victory. It doesn't really matter that it would be, let's say, 11 to 1 to convict. That When I was on the Enron cases, when I was in special counsel Mueller cases, we were keenly aware that if there were not a conviction, um, anything short of that would be viewed as a huge defeat. So you've got a real problem of, and the way I look at it is that the fate of the country could come down to the vagaries of this jury selection process and 
the integrity of a single person in the United States um, uh, in terms of how the trial, the, that trial that goes, the first trial that goes um, being perceived. Um, this, the second quick thing that I'd like to just talk about is how hard it is in a high profile case to um, gain the cooperation of anyone. Uh, when, when I was doing organized crime cases that, that Kitty referred to, there was, it was hard to get um, cooperators in those cases because the consequences to those people were that they or their family or both would be killed. Um, it's a violation of the oath of Omerta. And if they suspected you were cooperating, you would be killed. If you disappeared to cooperate and your family remained, they could be killed or threatened. Uh, and so um, that was a problem. But the thing that you didn't have to deal with in organized crime cases was um, the, the person who is deciding to cooperate wasn't changing how they thought of themselves as a person. They knew they were criminals. They embraced it um, by, by speaking with the government prosecutors. They, yes, they were revealing what happened, but they weren't changing sort of how they had to perceive themselves. Um, in a white collar case, um, such as Enron, uh, people have to come to terms with the fact that they are criminal. Um, one of the things one cooperator once told me in Enron was, Andrew, I just want to make sure you know, I did commit the crime, but I'm not a criminal. Um, and to me, that was that sort of was encapsulated the mentality that you had to deal with. They had been telling their friends and their families and themselves who they were. And they, these people had written, had been sort of at the height of power. This is the kind of thing that I imagine somebody like Mark Meadows is saying to himself. Um, and there are lots of excuses you could use. And then in a high profile matter, you have to add into the equation that not only do you have to admit this to your family, your friends and yourself, but your admission of wrongdoing will be splattered all across national papers and news uh, and every, your name will, and visage will be everywhere. Um, so it's a very, very daunting task to convince people to cooperate in that circumstance. Psychologically, you have so much going against you. Uh, and that's leaving aside the influence of money and power and what we had to deal with in special counsel Mueller's case, the dangling and then actual bestowing of pardons. Um, but even without all that, you, you still have, a, it's a huge uh, difficulty um, in terms of uh, dealing with what normal, in a normal case is difficult, but not insurmountable. Um, so I think those are two really big challenges that, that Jack uh, and Fonnie Willis and Alvin Bragg are going to all be dealing with in the um, weeks and months to come. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Wendy and you can start peppering me with, with the questions you have. Okay, so I have a first question I have is about the jury selection you were just talking about. And that is whether, I know the law is different in different states as to whether the identity of jurors is disclosed in, 
at the when they're first on the jury so that uh, let's say private investigators employed by a defendant could do some research on them. Um, do you know whether this is permitted in Georgia? And I don't, I don't, about that? yeah, I don't know the answer in Georgia. Um, so I don't know that answer. Uh, obviously, one of the unusual things about Georgia was that the identity of the grand jurors had to be revealed, which is shocking to me because at the federal level, we took great pains to make sure in the special counsel Mueller investigation that no identity of a grand juror was revealed. Um, so um, with respect to of the federal system and jurors, um, it is it is a fraught prospect if you want to keep the names of jurors away from defense counsel. Um, and um, and that's sort of one one thing that can be done, but you but and you can, if there's a sufficient record, prohibit the re revelation of those names to the defendant. Um, and so that's a way of, of trying to make sure that the defense team has due process uh, and can adequately address uh, the jury veneer and the makeup of the jury. Um, but in order to do that, you would need to have a very clear record um, of concern about uh, those jurors. I do think in this case, you would have that record because even, even if you couldn't link it to the actions of the defendant, um, which here I do think you could, um, but even if you didn't go there, the concern that the juror would have voting one way or the other if their identity were revealed um, to um, is something that I think a judge could take into account. But that was that is part of the, um, there'll be litigation on that. And if, as sure as we're sitting here, you know that the defense will be seeking all, you know, all information. So um, I know a lot of people want to know about the disqualification um, in, in the, from the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And I want to get to that. I just want to ask you one quick question going back to the jurors again, which relates yep. to the bail conditions that Trump just signed off on, which prevent him from uh, making any direct or indirect threats of any nature to any co-defendant, et cetera, to, on, to victims. He can't uh, make a direct or indirect threat of any nature against any victim. And it goes on. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. And who are the victims? I mean, we're all victims. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, so having looked at that, um, you know, it just came out uh, this afternoon. Um, it, it's largely, not entirely, but it's largely similar to the restrictions in uh, DC in the in the federal DC case. One of the distinctions is that. Um, the bail condition specifically calls out that the threats that are that he's prohibited from making directly or indirectly includes on social media. That is implicit in the DC 
um, restrictions as well. It's just not specifically called out. Um, in other words, you know, it's hard to imagine unless you, you know, except in this sort of childish media um, circus we're in that, I mean, the former president of the United States would ever be able to say, oh, I didn't really understand that you meant I could, I could threaten orally, but I couldn't threaten on social media. I mean, I could threaten on social media. I mean, of course it was implicit in DC, but it's specifically called out in um, the Georgia conditions. In terms of who the victims are, um, you certainly could take the view that um, first democracy writ large and all voters are victims, even voters for Donald Trump in the sense that everyone's entitled to know that there is a, um, a full and fair election and to have confidence in the result. So you could look at it, that's the, the largest way to look at it. Um, a smaller way is obviously this, all of the people who voted for um, Joe Biden or any candidate other than Donald Trump are, um, are victims because the, or intended victims because the whole, the whole goal was to disenfranchise tens and tens of millions of people. Um, but there are also direct victims. Um, for, so for instance, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are direct victims. Um, and in my personal view, um, they were targeted, um, they were specifically targeted, not just because they were there, but because they were black women. And the allegations um, to my mind, by Rudy Giuliani re referencing that they that they were passing around a thumb drive, which was actually a mint, like drug dealers, um, was a not so veiled racist trope. Um, and so I think they're clearly victims. They were clearly victimized. Um, for those people who think that this indictment is about inchoate crimes, that is not true. If you sat down with Ruby Freeman and, and Shea Moss, they, there's nothing in Coet about what they experienced. And that's true for many of the, um, many of the state uh, representatives who were um, subsequently harassed by uh, both Donald Trump and his acolytes. Um, so Brad Raffensperger and his team is just one example but there are many in the various state legislatures who are also sort of very specific victims um, called out in the Georgia indictment. So uh, going back to disqualification, which everyone is peppering um, me with questions about. Yeah. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what it is, what the process is for getting someone, let's say Donald Trump, uh, disqualified? And what's the significance of these two federal, federal society professors um, writing the Law Review article about it? Sure. So let me first give a, a caution, which is I'm not a, like your world's expert on this area. I, like a lot of people who are listening to this, um, have I've read the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, where two professors who are um, are certainly viewed as conservative uh, professors um, and members of the Federal Society, um, wrote this paper about the import of Section 3 of, of, um, article of uh, the 14th Amendment, and um, which came into effect, obviously, after the Civil War. The whole point was that if you engaged in the Civil War on the 
on the um, side, the losing side of the, in the South, and you were holding office at the time, holding federal office at the time. That's a key thing. In other words, you had an oath of office to the Constitution, and you engaged in insurrection, you were disqualified. Um, so that's the, the nature of the constitutional prohibition. There is a, there is a, a safety valve, which is two thirds of both houses of the federal Congress can relieve that incapacity uh, so that if there was that vote, you can be restored to being able to, um, to be able to hold office again, any office, by the way, this just happens to be talking about the presidency, but it would apply to any federal office. Um, I should note that in addition to the two professors, there is a, a piece um, that's shorter and easier to, like if you're not totally into the weeds, there's a really great piece from two people who I tremendously admire, which is Judge Ludig, um, who was is now a retired but, uh, Fourth Circuit judge, incredibly eminent, also viewed as a conservative jurist, um, but he is also a real hero. He is the person who um, was consulted by, uh, by Mike Pence's team about what he could and should do in, uh, in the run-up to January 6th and told him uh, that he you know, absolutely had no discretion. Uh, he, he famously tweeted about it and learned how to tweet in order to do this. Um, he actually tells the whole com very compelling story on our podcast. It was one, incredibly moving to, to hear it. Even I'd heard it before and I, even hearing it again, it's still a sort of a wonderful, wonderful um, story. And at this, in this time, it's very nice to have illustrations of people who act out of principle. Anyway, Judge Ludig wrote this piece with Lawrence Tribe, obviously incredibly eminent constitutional scholar at Harvard. Um, and the idea that the two of them, you know, joined forces very much viewed as sort of the right and the left um, and came out the exact same way uh, in terms of how they viewed uh, the, the prohibition. I want to caution people that it is none of this has really been tested recently, like since the Civil War. Um, there are lots of issues about um, is it self-executing? Um, in other words, sometimes there's something in the Constitution, but it awaits Congress acting on it. All of these these four people said it is self-executing. Executing. You don't need to have a congressional statute. Um, there are issues about what is insurrection? What does it mean to engage in rebellion and insurrection? Who's going to define that? What is the standard of proof for that? Remember the, the former um, president is not charged with insurrection, but it's also not clear that a criminal insurrection case is necessary. Um, and these um, jurists don't think it is. It, it isn't necessary to have a criminal um, conviction in order to um, find that someone engaged in insurrection. Presumably the standard would at least be a preponderance, more likely than not, but given the seriousness of what we're dealing with, you can imagine the court saying it should be at a higher level. That's also remains to be worked at. Now, how could this come up? It could come up because the Secretary of State in any jurisdiction could say, I am not 
going to put this person on the ballot because I think that they engaged in insurrection and I want and I'm not going to do that. And, and, and if there's a lawsuit challenging that, that that will presumably go eventually to the Supreme Court. And so one idea is to have a um, Secretary of State from a so-called you know blue state you know say that's what I'm intending to do. Um, have that become the test case so that this can all get decided. Uh, I, I have to say, there's you know it would be in, if I could major, sort of wave a magic wand. I I think that's sort of a, a legal issue. It'd be nice if they, if if this wasn't if all of this wasn't decided just based on that basis, um, and there it was also a natural electoral, a huge electoral defeat, as there was um, in the last election in the midterms. In other words, that but but again, I you know I think this is one where um, I believe in the rule of law, and this is going to get litigated. I mean, it's just inconceivable to me that this isn't going to happen. And regardless of whether you think there should be a political result to this and not a legal one. You might wish that, and I might wish that for the country, that it would be more healing to have another defeat. Um, if, if there is a legal prohibition, that's it. That's the answer if we're a country that uh, believes in the rule of law. And then the final point I would make is this is all about whether someone can run for the presidency. And obviously, that is incredibly serious and important and an important issue. Um, but I am by I am by um, profession a criminal lawyer, and there is a separate issue, which is from the way I look at it is I see hundreds of people who have been prosecuted and sentenced and gone to jail um, for engaging in an attack on the Capitol, and regardless of whether Donald Trump can is able to or not able to run for president. Um, he should be held to account criminally like anyone else who did um, the same conduct. And But but to my mind, he's more culpable, um, at, at least with respect to the January 6th uh, indictments, both federally and state. Um, I think that's also true of the documents case. I was, was the, as you mentioned at the outset, I was the FBI general counsel. It's incredibly important to me as somebody who used to be a member of the intelligence community that that kind of crime be vindicated. And um, it, it's when at NYU, we did put together a whole compendium of all of the cases of people who are far less culpable than in terms of what they did or alleged to have done than the former president and they all were prosecuted. Um, so, um, and then I'm gonna leave because it's to the side the Manhattan case because I think that is a more debatable case at least as to the felony part of it as to um, as to whether it's unusual the way he's being treated or not. But there are enough other cases <laughs> where you don't have to even open that Pandora's box. So uh, we have a question from Sue Mandel who asked whether um, it would start a push by red state secretaries of state to keep candidates they don't like off the ballots by making up some sort of crime. I mean, it has to be insurrection, right? So it has to be insurrection. I mean, I do think this whole idea of um, which people raise, which is, are we going to start becoming a country where it's tit for tat? Um, I, for years, as part of the special counsel Mueller team, investigated UK. Um, their um, 
uh, President Yanukovych famously had a show trial of his political adversary, Yulia Tymoshenko. Um, and we do not want to end up in that situation. Um, but we have a number of things that differentiate that. Let's just start with one, you need to have the grand jury decide that the person committed a crime. Now it is only probable cause and it's only a majority of the grand jurors. But so far, there, at the absolute minimum, there are over 50 grand jurors who determined that Donald Trump, there was probable cause that he committed the crimes in four separate indictments. But even more than that, the reason you, that in this country there can't be sort of like, oh, I'm just going to say that person did it and then they're going to go to jail, the sort of lock her up or lock him up, whichever it is, is that 12 people who are like 12 of us are going to be on a jury. And you, in order to send that person to jail, these 12 people are going to have to find proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that is the check in our system to abuse of the government, as it should be. Um, that, you know, I was a prosecutor for many, many years. I've also been a defense lawyer. That is, that is the way that you cabin the discretion of um, an abuse of the um, Justice Department or by the White House trying to use the Justice Department. Um, and that's the reason, for instance, that there was no prosecution of Hillary Clinton. There is no prosecution. There wasn't even an indictment of Andy McCabe, the acting FBI director. The there, the general, the as I understand it, the um, the grand jury didn't find that there was even probable cause and refused to actually vote an indictment there. So there really are teeth that can can prevent that problem of our becoming a so-called banana republic. Sounds good. So there's a lot of questions about timing of the trials, and there's also a lot of questions about jail time. So I'm going to make it your choice if you want to go to jail or to the clock. Well, let's go to the clock um, because that's the most pressing thing. Obviously, on August 28th, I think we're going to have it's kind of the whole ball of wax in the what I think is the most important case and the one that I would like personally to see go to trial first because I think it's the most serious. And that's saying a lot because I also think the Florida case is incredibly important uh, in terms of the harm to our national security. Um, and so Judge Chutkin has to make a, you know, a difficult uh, decision there. Um, I'm, I'm gonna back up to say that I, um, there are some wonderful, wonderful things that can be said about the Department of Justice, and there are wonderful things that can be said about Merrick Garland. But one of the things that I can't say that is so wonderful is that Jack Smith is in this position, and we are in this position of a race against the clock, because in my opinion, I could be wrong, is that I don't think that the department acted swiftly enough in investigating this. And that's leaving aside my views as to what I think they should have done with respect to um, volume two of the Mueller report. Leave that aside, because I could go on about that. But let's just focus on um, what happened on January 6th. It really, in my view, took the January 6th committee to both goad them and give them political cover to, to do more. Um, I think that they, the idea that they were going to do a bottom-up investigation is 
100% completely belied by the January 6th indictment, which is not a bottom-up investigation at all. Um, and it could not have been brought that way. And it was obvious it wasn't going to be able to be brought that way. But I'm not saying it was wrong to try and pursue that if they truly did, but you wouldn't solely pursue it from the bottom up. You would also look directly at the White House. And there was clear factual predication. Anyway, that's, I think, the situation we're in because of that delay is that Jack has had to sort of race to where he is. Um, and it is remarkable how much he has done in a very short amount of time. I, I know him pretty well from Eastern District of New York and then at Maine Justice and when I was at the FBI. And he's and he is the what you were seeing very much his reputation. Um, I think that Judge Chutkin is well within um, her rights. And uh, Judge Ludig, I'm happy to say, totally agrees with with this, um, which is that both the January 6th federal case and the Mar-a-Lago case, he thinks that totally consistent with due process, they can be brought um, before the election. I think they should be um, and can be brought before the Republican convention. And I think it would be important for that um, so that the um, voters, the Republican voters have that data point before they decide what to do. Um, uh, as you know, there's a huge conflict in terms of the um, the dates that have been proposed, one is January of uh, this upcoming year, and one is essentially never. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, years from now. That's, I thought that was, it, that wasn't the best way to be taken seriously, in my view, by Judge Chutkin, um, who's an experienced jurist. Um, and then uh, I have a piece that's coming out with Norm Eisen tomorrow about, I think, the sort of fallacy of the of the um, of Donald Trump's arguments about why it should be a very late trial and about how much discovery and the chart um, of you know the of uh, showing the what this would look like if you stacked papers up and you know one by one and how how big it is and it's like reading I think they said seventy eight copies of War and Peace a day. Um, Norm has a wonderful line which he he thought of, so I'm going to credit him. He said, "Well, you know." With electronic discovery, there's so much duplication of discovery that um, that the analogy to reading War and Peace it does it works, but not in the way that they intended. Which is, once you read it once, you don't have to read it another seventy-seven times because it's, it's all a duplicate, which was very clever. But it it really does get to the point that. Um, I, I was the head of the fraud section of the Department of Justice um, for several years. All we did was large white collar cases. That, that was our bread and butter. There were terabytes of documents, far more than 11 million. Um, it just, just inordinate amounts because you're dealing with corporate crime. If somebody had said, made a chart of paper documents and said there's gonna be page by page review, any federal judge you're in front of would have just laughed at you and said, that's just, that's just not how discovery works anymore. It is all done by electronic um, searches. There's a way of deduping so that all, all duplicates are immediately taken out. Um, you use search terms, you use artificial intelligence, and there's, there's so many ways to make it much more manageable. Um, so, I do, I do think that there should be sufficient time, but I, I actually think that um, the judge would be well within rights to pick January 
Um, she has a little bit of a problem in terms of how to slot this in because of the alleged criminality of Donald Trump. It's hard to figure out which how to fit this in within within the raindrops of all of his other um, indictments. Um, but um, I, I could easily see it being, um, and I'd be surprised if it's not within the year um, of when he was indicted. So I just a very quick um, slight turn off this road. I, when you're talking about the massive discovery of what comes to mind immediately is the Hillary Clinton laptop, which at the time I was so puzzled for the reasons that you are just articulated, why it would take them so long to review the documents on it. I mean, I, I'm in private practice as a lawyer and we use, we go through massive amounts of, of documents. Very yeah. Well, so Wendy, you're in good company because that was Loretta Lynch's comment to James Comey after um, he said, you know, I was in Iraq, between Iraq and a hard place, which I disagree with. Um, and I had no choice but to do what I did, which I disagree with. Um, and um, Loretta Lynch said to him, I have an idea. Why don't you look at the documents and go through them immediately, which they did in less than a week. Um, and, and by the, the I mean, there, there's a lot to say there, but I mean, the idea that they didn't do that first when they were sitting on the documents for at least six weeks, um, and then there was sort of this tantalizing, we're reopening. I mean, it's, there were a lot of sins that we can talk about that I think Jim Comey um, committed and knows he committed, because um, it's not how you act within the Justice Department. And he is still very much within the Justice Department held up as a, an example of what not to do. But anyway, your point was exactly what Loretta Lynch, her reaction was, as well as, by the way, she was the attorney general and was not notified beforehand. I mean, like I could go on and on as to what happened there. So as you go on and on, um, maybe McGonagall comes to mind. Is that his, how you say his name? The yes. FBI um, agent who just took a plea and has another case in D.C. And he yes. just seemed to be one of those sort of Zelig-like figures who was uh, at the right place at the right time. Every time there was like a, there seems to have been Russia involvement. I was wondering if you have anything to say about that or that you think may be coming up. You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. So let me just quickly um, make sure people understand there are two types of crimes um, that he was charged with, one in D.C., one in New York. Um, in, uh, in New York, the case that he just pled to, that is crimes of um, undermining U.S. sanctions after McGonagall left the FBI and that he was essentially getting money to do work for Oleg Deripaska, a very powerful Russian oligarch. You know, he, his name obviously came up a lot in connection with his, um, uh, in the, the Manafort uh, case, because he and Manafort had worked together for many, many years. Um, uh, so that was, you know, I don't know if there's more to it than that. I mean, other than it's it's bad in and of itself. I mean, it, his background is he was in law enforcement. He had an incredibly important position. He has now pled to that. So that's, he he is guilty based on his own words. In DC, in some ways, it's, it's an even worse crime. One is a crime that anyone can commit. Um, and he did after he left his law enforcement position and is sort of a civilian. 
his, the crime he's charged with in DC, which it sounds like his lawyers say it's about to get resolved and he will plead to that in some way, has to do with crimes he committed while at the FBI um, in terms of lying to people, taking money, not reporting it from um, people. That's the one, and by the way, but the, those people are not Derek, Oleg Deripaska. It's not a, a Russian um, uh, that, that I know of, and it's not alleged in the indictment. Um, and so that seems much more nefarious as to what is going on there. Um, you know, uh, kudos to the FBI that they brought the case and were cleaning house and, and were holding to account. There's nothing worse when you are in law enforcement than somebody in law enforcement who's betraying that trust to each other and to the public. Um, but the bigger view of is he, is there more to this? I don't know, and I'm I'm not seeing signs of that. And it it's easy to try and think of other. You can think of other things, but I don't see any evidence yet that would have me go to that next step yet. Great. So let's go to jail. Um, and who will be there? And uh, is Trump going to get put in jail when he? inevitably breaks these bail conditions because there's no way he's not going to do that. Yeah, so there's two sort of jail times that could come up. Um, as you said, there could be jail pending um, trial and there could be jail upon conviction. Um, so assuming that he is not, he or an ally or not uh, the next president of the United States and you know he's not pardoned, um, in my view, just my sort of looking at the cases, I do not see his being acquitted, ever being acquitted in either of the two federal cases. Um, they're, they're just too strong. Um, having just done so many federal criminal cases, the, the array of evidence is so strong that yes, you can always have a hung jury, as I mentioned, and the reasons for it, but I just don't see an acquittal. And upon conviction, um, particularly with Judge Chutkin, in other words, a judge who, who's, I think, going to be very, very fair in looking at precedent of how other people have been sentenced, I think that he is going to be sentenced to jail. Um, I do not think that the fact that he has Secret Service is going to stop Judge Chutkin, nor do I think it should. Um, and there are many places that currently exist where people can be kept safe, if that's the concern. Um, and, um, and by the way, I'm not even sure that you need to do that. Why should he be treated any better than anyone else? But let's assume that it's because he has to have Secret Service protection. Well, fine, they're witness security units. Paul Manafort, I mean, this is not something we wanted or agreed to, but the Bureau of Prisons did it. Paul Manafort, when he was, he obstructed justice pending trial because he obstructed with two witnesses um, and Amy Berman Jackson, sent him to jail pending trial um, because of that criminal conduct while out on bail, which is just shocking that, I mean, just you're, you're out on bail on a high profile national matter and you obstruct justice by, by um, tampering with two witnesses. He was in a prison where he had a library, an internet 
um, access. He could order in. He could wear <laughs> civilian clothes. It was um, he was on t when he complained about his um, and he had filed a motion. We had his prison tapes from from his um, uh, telephone calls where he said, "I'm being treated like a king. I love it here." So, um, I, by the way, I'm not saying that that's appropriate. I think it's not appropriate. Um, but there are ways to have somebody go to jail and you don't have to worry about their safety. I, I just don't see how a, a judge who is being fair can say that low-level people are going to do two, three, four, eight, 12 years in jail when somebody who, in my view, again, just in my opinion, is more culpable because they are the leader um, and they violated their oath of office and they were trying to instigate this with so many scores of people that that person is going to get a pass. I just don't see that um, in, in any way, shape or form being con consistent with the rule of law. Now, I'm a, this is the reason I was a prosecutor for years is I'm a very sort of rule of law person and I view it in a very myopic way. I do know that there are other people who, think about other issues that come into play, but that's not how I think about it at least, which may be wrong, it may be too myopic. Um, in terms of his threatening people, um, which is an incredibly serious problem, I do think that we are likely to see incremental steps. Let me give you an example. Amy Berman Jackson did the Roger Stone trial. She's a wonderful jurist in DC. And um, Roger Stone posted on social media a picture of the, the judge's face and to the, I think it was over her shoulder, crosshairs. He then took the stand at the hearing on the bail hearing um, and said they weren't crosshairs. And then he pretended that he didn't even post it. And it was, it was palpably false. I mean, it, it was neat. In addition to what he did, he lied about it on the stand. That's what the judge found. Um, and there, um, and I think this is because the judge was bending over backwards to say like, it is, I, it is hard to prepare for trial from jail. It is easier to, to respect someone's due process rights to prepare to, to do that, um, uh, you know, when you're out. But she severely restricted his ability to post and speak. Um, and so I do think we'll get incremental punishment. I also think, by the way, if the judge had been dealing with a situation where the crosshairs were about anyone but her, the situation could have been very different because um, of the sense of responsibility to witnesses, jurors, family members. But I think when it was respect to her, she could make the own, her own decision about what she was willing to tolerate because she was the victim. Um, uh, so, um, I do think we're going to see those incremental steps. Um, and I think that's that's correct. But I also think that um, if it were any other case, those incremental steps would have been taken already um, because the risk to uh, people who, who are just doing their jobs is is too great in my view. Uh, and it's, um, as I, I think I said to Nicole Wallace on air, you can run for president and not obstruct justice. It is there, this is not a question of, but you're interfering with my ability to run for office. You have every 
ability to do that, but you can't endanger witnesses, jurors, family members of prosecutors, prosecutors themselves, all of that is off limits, nor is it necessary to, um, to running for office. You could argue it's actually better not to do that if you're running for office, but- You would, you would think in, an, in a normal, or to use Nicole, Earth, in Earth One, that would be true. <laughs> So you brought up Roger Stone and people who commit crimes while on bail. And what do you think is going to happen to him? I know he's got the pardon, but is there a world in which Stone and some of these other guys, Flynn, Bannon, will be indicted or see some well, well, so Bannon is under, you know, Bannon has been convicted and, and there's a, uh, in DC, he was convicted for contempt. He is I think he's awaiting trial in state court for the 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 um, build the wall fraud case. Right. Um, so I think he's sort of he's got he's got his own criminal trouble. Um, Michael Flynn, um, I, I'm not as aware right now of the proof that would exist to be able to show beyond a reasonable doubt that he should be charged with a crime. Um, with Roger Stone and kudos to um, Ari Melber, um, the sort of recent um, tapes that he has been playing of um, Roger Stone showing that he was very aware of and participating in the false elector scheme on November 5th, totally consistent with the idea that this was, this was always plan B. Um, uh, I do think is something that is going to um, if it hasn't already, um, let me let me withdraw that. That is something that I'm confident the Department of Justice is focusing on. And the reason is Roger Stone is so central to the connective tissue between the White House and the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. Um, and the, this tape just helps solidify that. So whether they get to the, the point where they have um, uh, proof that they think will will satisfy the very high criminal standard. I don't know, but I am confident, particularly given that he was not he was convicted, he was about to go to jail, and then was pardoned by the same person who is now under indictment in the for what happened. Is I think going to make him a particular focus in the same way that I think Jeff Clark, because of his position at the department, if I were there, it would be very hard not to view that as, an, as something I would really want to vindicate if the facts were, if I could establish the facts, because it's so, what he did, what Jeff Clark did was so antithetical to the values of the Department of Justice, it would be very hard not to view that as as sort of the after Donald Trump, somebody who I'd really want to be able to see him being brought to account. Um, so who else do you think is going to be indicted? In these well, I, I think at the federal level, um, I think that we are going to see the same confluence that we saw with Fannie Willis. I, I think all of the unindicted co-conspirators are going to be charged. I've never seen an indictment with, that was quite so explicit or detailed about unindicted co-conspirators. I have this theory that, and I know it's not just you and me talking, so I'm going to just like give a little um, uh, like disclaimer, which is this is just a theory. It could be totally wrong, 
But when I read the indictment, my first reaction on this issue was, gee, I wonder if it initially was written where they were all defendants. And because there was so much detail and so much proof that would go off to, now let me talk about Jeff Clark and all the stuff he was doing at the department that the White House may not have even known about. I mean, as a conspirator, it's all chargeable to, to, um, to Donald Trump, but it just seemed so detailed uh, that I, I, it's, it felt like the decision was made. We're going to go and bring this case against Donald Trump. We're going to get a trial date and we'll deal with those issues second. Um, it's more important, given the clock, that we keep our eye on the ball um, and holding this person to account um, uh, and get to trial so that there can be a judgment one way or the other for the public to see. Um, okay, so there's a million more questions in like four more minutes. So, uh, you can have a speed round. I know, <laughs> definitely. Um, ooh, what, uh, well, this is a, a stepping back question. Um, given your long history in government and the law, do you believe our country will withstand this assault on our democracy and justice? I don't know. I, I do think if Donald Trump is is elected, um, then I think the answer is no. I think that our American experiment is is over. I mean, I hate to like. I just it's hard to. I, I mean, that is a vote against facts, against science, and against the rule of law. It's very very hard to see. And you know, there could be a huge percentage of the company a country that is incredibly upset and but i just think we are not going to be america anymore um uh so do you think that the uh, 14th amendment section 3 could be applied to hawley and cruz and some of those uh insurrectionist types people who might have been um, pathetic to well um you know it's really interesting so i mean obviously we need, a, we need a decision from the Supreme Court about how that works. And we need a mechanism for determining who decides what's insurrection, what are, the, what are the parameters of it, and what's the standard of proof. Um, we, we need all of that. Um, and then there's the application. Um, you know, I, this is probably not going to be a terribly satisfying answer for, for many people. And I understand why people might disagree. But you know, what I've heard is that when Liz Cheney was doing the January 6th committee hearings, which I think were, I'm old enough that I remember the Watergate hearings, and I think that they were as important, if not more important, in terms of how we saw and thought about what had happened, um, and in terms of what it means for the, the country, for the reason we just talked about. Um, I've heard that she very much said, look, there are a lot of other issues. There are a lot of other players. There are a lot of other things we could do that are valid and worthwhile, but that this is not the time and place. Um, and we have to keep focused on the central problem right now. Um, and that's and I am a big believer in holding enablers to account. I mean, that was that was for all of us who are prosecutors on Enron. That was our huge mantra that Enron was much more a, a story about the enablers 
than about Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay, because um, that's going to repeat itself. It was more, but, and so I, I understand that. I just think for the moment, it is, it's, I don't think it's the most important conversation right now, even though, and by the way, I totally understand that people could disagree with this and there could be a really good argument on the other side. Um, so we only have like a minute or two left. You have a room full of people or a Zoom full of people who are really passionate about trying to preserve democracy and do what we can. Do you have any advice to us about what we can do and what the best way is to try to keep us afloat? Um, you know, I've, I have nothing um, more than I know lots of people are doing, which is... Um, and it's it's awful that we're like this is this this is there's so many elections where people say this is the most important election of our lifetime, um, but it is, um, and it's yet again, um, and so, um, you know, I'll give you an example. My sister, who is a very 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 busy um, doctor with a you know established private practice. Um, took time off to knock on doors in her local state, which was going to be a very close election, and it squeaked by in the way that she wanted it to go. Um, and I do think it's going to take, I mean, everyone who feels strongly about this, it's going to take 110% effort on everyone's part. And, and whether it's knocking on doors, stuffing envelopes, speaking, money, all of that is going to be so important. And, and um, to the extent, you know, one of the things that the uh, MAGA movement has on its side is that it is largely a very, very motivated voter block. And they come out and they come out in one way. Um, and that makes it very, very dangerous. It's, 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 a, it's a real issue in democracy when you have these sort of voter blocks that like that. Um, and for in order, if you're on the side of people who think that that's not where you should be, it's really important to be as engaged as possible. And thank you so I, much. Yeah, Andrew, thank you so much. We are so grateful for your time and um, your very, very uh, <laughs> expert wisdom on all of this. And I do want to pick up where you left off because I totally agree and Big Tent agrees too that um, it's really about all the small steps that we take um, and we have to take them every day as much as we can. So I encourage you to, we are going to be focusing on North Carolina and Virginia this fall. We have some great activism on our website. The links are in the chat. Um, and Andrew, I hope you'll come back. Maybe we will go to trial before. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. I, I thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's been great to talk to you and with yeah, you. We, okay, great. Well, we'll get you back for sure. Wendy, thank you so much for uh, moderating. Everyone take a look at ways to be active um, in this upcoming 2023 election cycle. It's very important in Virginia and North Carolina who has a major change in their voter ID laws. So we need to support the people of North Carolina. There'll be a lot more on our website and uh, a lot more events coming up. So again, everyone, thank you for coming to Big Tent USA. Andrew, Wendy, we're so, so grateful. Have a great night, everyone.